You are listening to episode number 24 of The Love Noteworthy Show. Welcome to The Love Noteworthy Show, the guide to leading your life with passion, purpose, perspective, and prosperity. Each week, we feature entrepreneurs, influencers, game changers, and change makers who provide powerful strategies for creating a remarkable first impression that leads to a lasting impact in your business, brand, and personal life. So come join us as we transform your mindset and teach you the lessons that you want and need to become love noteworthy. Welcome back, everyone, to the final episode of the Love Noteworthy Show of 2014. I can't believe that we've already been running this podcast for four months, and we are on episode number 24. That is incredible, and it could not have been done without you, the listeners. So thank you so much for continuing to subscribe, share, and engage in the podcast. And I would love to hear if you have ideas for topics for in 2015 or speakers or people that you would like me to interview, please reach out and send me an email to hello, H-E-L-L-O at reesesims.com. I would love, love, love to hear from you. But today I want to dive into the final episode and I thought it would be very pertinent to talk about the fear of failure. And as we continue to spend the last few days of 2014 with our friends and family and just taking some time to relax. I know this time of year is all about kind of creating those New Year's resolutions and really reflecting on 2014. And so I wanted to have an episode where we focused on overcoming fear of failure. And one quote that I particularly like and want to use as an intention for 2015 is to not let the fear of what could happen make nothing happen. And so we'll be talking about this in the episode with Emily Swallow. Now, Emily and I met when I was living down in Santa Monica in the summer. She was somebody that I really looked up to as she was just ridiculously hardcore at the gym, like always so much energy, just crushing it, like working harder than anybody else. And we would kind of small talk. And eventually we had a great conversation and she told me all about her Uh, budding acting career. Uh, She's been in the industry for 10 years, has been on Broadway, was featured in two seasons as a series lead in The Mentalist in seasons five and six, as well as one of the main characters on Monday mornings. And I could not think of a better person to talk to today because she is just so humble and so candid and just so willing to talk all about behind the scenes of just building her career um, to talk about the fear of failure. Because as you know, actors do have to endure dozens, if not hundreds of auditions and are constantly being rejected. And it can be crushing and very hurtful. But she continues to audition and get these amazing roles. Um, And I mean, she has been doing this for 10 years. And has really been able to adjust her mindset to make herself feel more comfortable with that feeling of failure and really shifting her mindset to make it more of a learning process as opposed to considering it a failure. And we'll talk about that a lot today in the episode. So whether or not you are fearing really becoming an entrepreneur, doing a job interview, or even going on a date, all of the topics that we will be focusing on and the tangible takeaways are definitely relevant. And so with that, I just want to wish you a very happy new year. Please reach out to me. Thank you so much again for listening to the last couple months of the show. And I look forward to providing great content for you in 2015. And here is our final episode of the year featuring Emily Swallow on overcoming your fear of failure.
Welcome back, everyone, to the Love Noteworthy Show. My name is Reese, and today we are going to be talking about overcoming your fear of rejection. And I couldn't think of a better person to have on the show to discuss this topic other than the talented Emily Swallow. And here's why. So Emily started her career on Broadway, where she performed in various productions, including High Fidelity, King Lear, Taming of the Shrew, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, and Much Ado About Nothing, among other shows. But she also landed her first television role in Guiding Light, later taking parts in Southland, Ringer, The Good Wife, NCIS, Flight of the Concords, Medium, and as a series regular, Dr. Michelle Robideau on TNT's medical drama Monday Mornings, and was a starring role in The Mentalist as FBI agent Kim Fisher for two seasons. So while she has had an extremely successful career so far, uh, which is very far from over, as you may guess, uh, while auditioning, actors must undergo a constant stream of rejection in order to to receive their big breaks. Thank you, Emily, so much for being on the show today. And we're really lucky to have you to talk about your experience. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about growing up? I know you first did your BA in Middle Eastern studies. How did you transition from that to going into acting? It's sort of funny that we're talking about growing up and I am currently in my hometown visiting my family. <laughs> um, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I first started performing with music because both of my parents love music, and neither of them are professional musicians, but um, my dad plays several instruments, and my mom has always sung in the church choir, and so she put me in the children's choir when I was little. And I loved singing, but for a long time, like I was terrified of performing. It was so scary to get up in front of an audience, but there was also something about that fear that I was like, I wanted to figure out how to not make it so scary. And I knew it was worth trying to, to cope with because I loved singing so much. So, so I sang when I was little and then I always did plays when I was in school. And so I kept that up and I, I, I went to the university of Virginia and they have an amazing drama department there. And the great thing, well, one of the great things for me about it is that you definitely do not have to be a drama major to be an integral part of the department and to to act and to direct and to take classes. And so, so I, you know, I just continue to take acting classes and continue to do plays, but it just, I don't think it ever because no one in my family is in the arts professionally, it just sort of never felt like it was within reach. I think I sort of never let myself consider what it would be like to have a career as an actor. And there were other things that I loved, including foreign affairs and Middle Eastern studies. And so that was just sort of what I pursued because it seemed more logical. So I was sort of dividing my time in college between the two, but I did have an acting teacher named Richard Warner who saw how much I loved it and who encouraged me to think about pursuing it as a career. And he said, you know, maybe um, rather than like just graduate and dive into trying to be a professional actor, maybe you should explore it some more and, and go continue your training. So he helped me prepare auditions for graduate programs and conservatories I auditioned and one of the programs I got into was NYU and I knew that that was a pretty kick-ass program and it was in New York, which is somewhere that I wanted to be if I was going to be an actor. So 
the door opened and I walked through it and it's just, um, I mean, doors have continued to open ever since. And so I'm really grateful that, that, uh, that opportunity presented itself when it did, because who knows how it all would have played out otherwise. You know, I don't know if I would have started down another career path first and then come back to acting or if I never would have pursued it. I really don't know, but I love what I do and, um, I've been doing it professionally for 10 years now. So, so I guess it's working out. <laughs> so tell us about your experience in New York. So how, like, how did you first audition and get into Broadway shows and off-Broadway shows? Um, well, one of the great things about NYU is you work, while you're in school, you work with directors who also direct in the city um, professionally. And so I got to, to form a lot of connections while I was in school, and that was incredibly helpful. Um the first paid gig that I had when I graduated was doing Shakespeare in the Park, which happens every summer in Central Park in New York. And it's just, it's such a dream because it's its this beautiful outdoor theater in Central Park. It's been a tradition for a couple of decades now. Um, Joe Papp, who founded the Public Theater, also started Shakespeare in the Park. And so I got to just like dive in head first into doing this fantastic production that people mm. in line for hours and hours and hours to get the tickets. And so that was really exciting. And so I was like, wow, this is great. I've got it made. You know, I'm <laughs> never gonna, never gonna have a lull in work because I started rehearsal for that, like immediately after I graduated from NYU. But then after that show closed, I started to finally get a taste of what, um, what it means to start out as a struggling actor. After that, I had to supplement the work that I was doing, being like a temp and catering and doing so many of the things that so many actors have to do. Then I guess after that, I did a play in New York and started just doing mostly smaller, like off-Broadway things. And then, yeah, High Fidelity was sort of like the, the first kind of big deal show that I got. And it was it was an incredible experience for m so many reasons, positive and I won't say negative, but it definitely showed me like there's so much that goes into creating a, a Broadway show, um, a big commercial Broadway hit. And it was really interesting to see that process and to see so many talented people involved with it. And with that particular show that, that was based on this hit movie that, you know, John Cusack had been in and which mm -hmm. was also the movie itself was based on this book that Nick Hornby wrote. Really incredible source material and really talented people writing it. And High Fidelity sort of bombed. It was so interesting to see. We had an out-of-town tryout in Boston and there were so many, like, incredible moving parts of this musical. Mm -hmm. Um and they kept trying to like rearrange them and plug in things here and, you know, recast people. And ultimately I don't really know why it didn't, why it didn't all come together in the way that, that would have made it successful. But we, we had a few months in Boston and then we came to New York. We opened, uh, let's see, we had previews. We opened on a Tuesday or on a Thursday. And we found out when we got to work the following Tuesday that it was going to close at the end of the week. Is so crazy to me. High Fidelity was such a successful book and movie, and then yeah. to see it not get to run its full length is just yeah, it boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah, but then that also, I mean, that it, it's always been astonishing to me in my career 
Um, and now I sort of expect it that like, you know, I get some gig that I think is just going to be the end all be all, or I'm auditioning for something that I think is going to be the end all be all. And then it doesn't go the way I expected. And then in the wake of that, some other opportunity that I had no idea was even out there comes up. Um, so tell us a little bit more about moving over to Los Angeles. Like, was it something that you kind of decided on and made a pretty quick shift over or, you know, you, I still like, what, were your, really what was your decided. mindset? I mean, if people <laughs> ask me, I say, oh, yeah, I live in New York and L.A., which is technically true because, I mean, there there hasn't been any full year that I've only spent in one place. Okay. Um, but when I first started out trying out both cities, I, I say that I have an open relationship with both cities. Um, <laughs> and at first, I was mostly in New York and I was coming out to L.A. for maybe two or three months at a time, but spending most of the year in New York. And gradually that just sort of reversed itself as I started getting more, I guess as I started getting like series regular gigs, like when I got the Monday mornings, um, series, um, then it was sort of a, a, I knew I was going to be in LA for a longer period of time, but I, I mean, I still have, I still have a storage unit in New York, um, because I, when I, for, for a while, I was just subletting my place in New York whenever I was in LA, but then it was time to get rid of that place. Mm. But I knew like, even then I was like, well, I am still connected to New York. I, I feel like I will still live here again at some point. So there's no point in like taking all my stuff to LA. Um, so I still feel like I have I am tied to both cities in a way that I love because I have great friends in both cities and because they're both very different, both in terms of the work that I get to do and just the way that I live my life. I mean, I think right now I'm happier in LA because I do, I just feel so much more whole and so much more sane when I can go in the ocean and surf and when I can, you know, go hike in the mountains and it's harder to do that stuff in New York and, um, especially in the winter. <laughs> oh yeah. Especially in the winter. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely digging the LA vibe right now, but, uh, uh but yeah, I, I still feel very hesitant to say that like one or the other is home. <laughs> Maybe that's a cop out. <laughs> um, okay. Let's shift gears here and talk about, um, when you first landed your role with on Monday morning. So that was yeah. one of the lead roles, right? And Yeah, that was my first series regular thing. Yeah. So tell us about like once you landed it, were you like, holy crap, like what do I do now? And just tell us a little bit more about like the dynamic yeah. of working with people and just being in more than one episode and uh -huh. um the process of it actually like airing on TV and people suddenly recognizing you <laughs> and stuff like that. Like having fans or that sort of thing um huh well <laughs> I mean the cool thing is that okay so w when you're auditioning for a gig like that that is a series regular gig it's different from when you're just doing like a guest spot on an episode or even a recurring character because when you audition for especially if it's a brand new show you're auditioning for the pilot and you have to you have to do a what's called a test, um, mm -hmm. essentially a screen test. And I had tested for probably a dozen pilots before I got that one. And actually, I had gotten another 
pilot a few years prior and we'd shot it. It was this amazing show for CBS called, um, or no, not, was it CBS? I think it was CBS. It was called The Odds. And it was set in Vegas, and I was a bounty hunter, and it was so much fun. Sweet. Um, and so we shot the pilot, but then it didn't get picked up to series. So then I went back to testing again. Um, but it's, it's such a charged thing because just when you test, you have to sign a contract. So there had already been like a dozen different projects for which my agents had worked out my contract. And when you sign the contract, it's for like six years. So all of these jobs that I was just auditioning for – before I could do this final audition, I'd had to read through this like 10 page contract that my agents had worked out and read all this stuff about my salary and like pay increase from season to season and what my billing would be and how big my trailer would be, which is what? just such a weird <laughs> thing to have in your head when you're going into something that is essentially just another audition. Um, but because of that, I think that like by the time I finally landed, you know, that first pilot that didn't go to series and then ultimately Monday mornings, like, I think it put me in a good headspace because I wasn't as influenced by all the hype. And that I think is the biggest, I mean, besides like the nature of how you prepare the work, I think that's the biggest difference between doing theater and doing television is that there is so much more attention when you're doing TV on um, the money and on like status within a TV show and you know, how, what this idea that we have of celebrity and how much exposure you're going to have that is so separate from the work itself, but is very important. So because I'd had so many of these, um, you know, huge opportunities that hadn't panned out when I did land Monday mornings, like I felt like I was in a really good place um, to be able to tackle like that, um, that big an opportunity. I wasn't as thrown by like, oh my God, this is this brand new show that David E. Kelly, um, and Sanjay Gupta are doing, you know, these huge personalities, these Mm -hmm. really respect. I knew that like the thing I need to focus on the most was, was what I've always focused on, whether I'm doing, you know, a little play off Broadway or some big TV show. I needed to focus on the work. Um, And it was also kind of like that particular audition was pretty interesting because I actually booked that job off of tape while I was in Minneapolis doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is (laughs) a play that I've always wanted to do. And the opportunity came up and normally, you know, Agents try to discourage actors from leaving town during pilot season, but my agents also know like how important theater is to me and how great this opportunity was. So they're like, okay, you know, you can go do this. So I spent this winter in Minneapolis doing this play that I love and then working my ass off because I was taping all these auditions because mm-hmm. by that time, um, I mean, fortunately, people wanted to see my tape because by that time I'd, I had great relationships with these casting directors in L.A. So they were interested in seeing a tape that came in from... Minneapolis. But then here I was, you know, out of LA doing this play that I love. And that's when I book this big series, <laughs> which was awesome. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. Like I don't have to follow the rule book all the time. Like I can listen to like what my gut is telling me. Um, that's great. so, um, we shot the pilot. I guess I had a few, 
I had maybe like a month. No, not even that long after I found out I got it before I had to go do it. So I just, I mean, I did my prep for the role as best I knew how. Um, we did have um, a really great relationship with the writers on that show. And so we were able to ask questions about, because that's also one of the interesting things about doing a, a TV show, especially like when you're starting from the very beginning is you don't know where your character is going. So sometimes it's sort of hard to know like how to make choices um, about how you see the character because you might know what they're doing in this one episode that takes place over a few days, but then what are the writers going to have your character do, you know, 10 episodes down the line and what kind of groundwork do you need to lay now in order to set that up? Um, And most of the time the answer is that they don't know. And so you (laughs) discover it together. Um, But I did try to just ask as many questions as I could of the writers and, um, I mean, it was such, I feel so incredibly lucky because that was a true, that, I mean, the people on that show, Alfred Molina, Ving Rhames, uh, Bill Irwin, Jamie Bamber, Jennifer Finnegan, Sarga Rao, um, Kong Sim, like all these incredible actors who are very passionate about their work and have such integrity and are also incredibly generous human beings. And so we as a cast communicated really well and there was no there was a great deal of humility and there was no um I didn't feel like there was a lot of like lobbying for status with that cast which there Mm, can sometimes be and people can sometimes be really protective of their process and they want to do it all on their own and then get there and shoot and they don't really want to talk about anything with you um interesting yeah and something I never really thought of yeah um and that cast was definitely one of the most generous groups I've been a part of. And also, um, because of that, it sort of showed me that like, okay, if somebody like Alfred Molina, who's been in this business as long as he has, and who is as as incredible an actor as he has, as he is, and who is as busy as he is, if he can still be a kind, generous, humble human being, then nobody has any excuse not to be. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's definitely something that when I work with people like that, it's a reminder that if I ever get too big for my britches, I need to definitely take a step back and look at, you know, what it is that I'm getting all hung up in because there's no reason for that. Yeah, for sure. I think people can get caught up in kind of the the process, I guess. And they, a lot of times, like regardless of industry you forget to take a step back and just evaluate like, where am I at? What am I doing? Am I doing this with good intentions in mind? Cause you can just, yeah, get caught up in the rhythm of everything that's yeah. happening. Well, and so. I mean, like, I think the simplest way to say it, like what I saw Alfred do and so many of the actors on that show do is that their focus was always more on the people around them than on themselves. And I think that like that, I mean, and, and looking at some of the other questions that you were asking and maybe are about to ask, but like, I feel Mm -hmm. like, I feel like that is sort of the thing that I've realized over and over saves me when I'm, you know, when I'm nervous about a particular, uh, audition or job, or when I'm intimidated by somebody, like the more I can put my focus on like being interested in the other person and just responding to whatever it is that they're doing and, and trying to draw them out, like the less nervous I am, the less caught up I get in, you know, whether or not I deserve to be there or whatever, um, the less insecure I get because it's just, you know, it's exhausting to, 
to try to worry too much about that, especially in this. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, kind of on a similar parallel. So another large role that you took on was as Kim Fisher in The Mentalist. And shout outs to my dad and his wife because it's like their favorite show. I told them you'd say hi. Right, say hi for them. Yay. <laughs> it's also um, one of my parents' favorite shows, which is why, I mean, when I got before it, Before you were on the admit, show? What? Before you were on the show? Oh, yeah. Because you were on season like five and six or something, right? Yeah, they'd been watching it from the start. And I, oh I had God. seen maybe one or two episodes. And so it was like kind of more exciting to tell them that I'd gotten the job than than even like when I found out for myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can only imagine they probably lost it. <laughs> um, yeah, that I mean, that one was a, an entirely different beast um, in terms of like exposure, because I had no idea how many people are such rabid fans of that show. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely it was it was also a very different experience coming into something that had already been running for five seasons rather than, you know, with Monday mornings, we were all sort of creating it from the ground up. And this yeah. show had already clearly like figured out what was working. And um, when I was cast, they were trying to do like a reboot because they were there was this one storyline that had been going the whole series that they were drawing to a close and they kind of wanted to to shift gears. Um, and so that was interesting because I did get to talk to them about, you know, what it was they hoped my character would do and where they saw it going. Um, and that was very exciting. Um, but it was also intimidating. Like I have to say, like, you know, yeah, like, did you get starstruck and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be working with like Simon Baker or something. (laughs) And then, um, I, I mean, I had an incredible amount of respect for him. I, I don't, I wasn't, no, no, I don't, I think somehow I'm able to block out like being nervous about working with people that I respect. Mm, Okay. Where was your mindset when people started reaching out to you as fans and were like, oh my God, Emily Swallow, you're so cool. Or um, when you started going to kind of press events or kind of bigger events in Los Angeles as a star on like a major television show? Um, it was, I mean, it was all sorts of things. It was fun. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it is fun. Like it, it really touches me that people get so invested in these shows and that they do reach out the way they do. I mean, I've gotten some really cool care packages from fans and really, um, Aww. yeah. Um, and that is kind of cool. Um, but it's also bizarre. I mean, I think that like, I don't really, like, I love what I do. I love my work. I don't enjoy having that much focus on me as a person. Um, and I understand that that's part of what I do for a living. And, like, I'm perfectly willing to, you know, do the the press events that I need to do and answer the questions and stuff. And, I mean, I love stuff like this where, like, you know, we just get to talk very casually about like I'm getting to tell you about the things that I love about what I do and it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's not as like commercially driven um but it's definitely like that part of it is like okay that's the part that reminds me that like this is a job um and um like I always want to be myself I always want to be authentic but I also like I don't I don't really want to reveal 
Like, I, I'm not one of those people who is going to say, like, oh, I'm an open book. Anyone can know anything about me. Like, there, there are things that I am happy you're keeping private. And so, like, sort of finding, like, what those boundaries are has been interesting. interesting. And, and it's something that, like, it both feels so personal and impersonal because there's all this focus on you and there's all this, like, digging in. But very often, like, it's not very personal or it's just about like a very specific aspect of what you're doing. I mean, like, you know, when I got the mentalist, I'd already been, I'd been doing work that I loved for, um, let's see, I started the mentalist, uh, just a little over a year ago. So I'd been acting for nine years at that point, And I'd been, I'd done so many things that I was so proud of. So in a way it was bizarre, you know, for all of a sudden people to be like, oh, now we're going to pay attention to you. And it's because you're doing this, you know, this TV show, The Mentalist. And I was like, well, yeah, but this is just another thing that I'm doing. Like, this is not really any different from, to me, it's not really any different from everything else that I do. So, okay. All right. Now, now I have a little more like personal scrutiny and people are paying more attention to what I do. That's interesting. But, um, you know, it also just felt bizarre. It felt kind of random. It's like, oh, okay, it's <laughs> happening now. Interesting. All right. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, would you say that you are naturally more of an introvert or extrovert? Um, I think I'm more of an introvert, but I have to, like, I recognize that being more extroverted um, is so important because I can also sometimes, like, isolate way too much. Um, Mm. and don't get me wrong. Like I do love, like I love people and I do like, I love learning about other people and I love learning about what makes other people tick and what they do. But like, you're not gonna like my past few new year's eves have been spent like camping and going to a meditation (laughs) retreat. Like, um, I'm not someone who loves like big parties and big crazy events Um, but also like if I spend too much time being on my own, then I just get way too focused on myself and I sort of lose perspective. So yeah, yeah. Okay. I feel like I am by nature an introvert, but by practice an extrovert, um, because it always brings me relief to be, you know, to then come out and be around other people. For sure. Do you have any strategies for people that are naturally more of introverts? Like, of course, in the industry, you're going to have to put yourself out there regardless of if you're comfortable doing it or not. So do you have any strategies that people that are not necessarily actors, but just more introverts can use to get themselves out of their comfort zone? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, well, start small, like don't, I don't think you have to dive into some like huge, crazy, um, event or party. And I think like the thing, whenever I find myself intimidated by somebody or, nervous about meeting somebody or feeling like I'm out of my element, I always want to find what it is that we have in common. And, and I always find it easier to ask questions about whoever it is that I'm talking to than, you know, think too much about myself or have to answer too much about myself. So if I can, if I can find, you know, if I can ask questions and genuinely be interested in the other person, it's so much of a relief. And then I stop thinking about like, I stop thinking about me. I stop worrying about me. Um, and then it's through that that I can find the ways that we are connected, the things that we have in common. And I mean, something that you were saying to me 
um, before we officially started our, our interview was, was, um, how important it is to share experiences. Um, and I think that that's so true because I think it's really, I, I feel like it's human nature to feel like we are going through something that nobody else has ever had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's so not true. I mean, yes, we are all beautifully unique. And yes, like we all have our own way of moving through life. But the more I connect to people and the more I am willing to be open and honest about what it is I'm dealing with, the more I hear that reflected back to me. And the more I hear people say like, oh my God, you know, I went through the same thing. Like, and I'm not even talking about like necessarily other actors. I mean, sure, it's great when I hear other actors who are dealing with similar things. But, you know, I have a friend who I talk to regularly who's a doctor and, and like we share a lot of viewpoints and, and I have friends who are in things, you know, not at all related to the entertainment industry. And the more I'm willing to like come out of this introverted self and be honest about what I'm struggling with or what I'm celebrating, the more I realize like other people have had to deal with the same things. And so I can learn from them and, and it doesn't feel as, as challenging or as difficult because I recognize like, okay, this is just another way that I have to be a human being today. And, you know, everyone else is dealing with similar things in some way. And so chances are, I'm going to get through it. It's going to be all right. And I'm going to learn something from it and I will come out a better person on the other side. So, all right, let's stop. Like, let's stop being resistant to whatever it is and just breathe into it and see what happens. (laughs) That's great advice. Um, Let's dive into kind of the meat of the conversation. So in becoming an actor, you must have had to learn to control your emotions. Um, So for non-actors, do you have any strategies for becoming more emotionally self-aware? Yeah, I actually feel like being an actor um, sort of saves me. Like I feel like, because I feel like, since I know I have to get in touch with my emotions for my work, it forces me to do it in a way that is vital for me outside of my work too, but that I might not be as inclined to do if I didn't, does that make sense? If I didn't like have to do it in the service of a role. Yeah. Um, And so I feel like it's something that's important to do for everybody. And it's important for me to do whether or not it's in service of some role that I'm doing. And for me, that just means like really trying to, to set aside some time every day to drop in on whatever it is that I'm feeling. Um, and I, I do have a sort of, um, very loosely structured meditation practice because it's, it can change depending on like where I am kind of with what I think I need from it. But I find that every day I need to spend some amount of time, um, stopping the inertia because mm-hmm. I am somebody who is like always moving forward. And so sometimes I just need to stop and like really kind of check in with what it is that I am feeling. And, um, and for me, um, that means also like physicalizing it in some way and, or, um, expressing it like through, I mean, I like to paint, um, Sometimes I draw and never very skillfully, but there is something about, I believe really strongly in the power of, of, um, like physical ritual. And I think that one of the things, Mm -hmm. especially as we more and more are this society where we're spending so much time in our heads, 
um, to know and on what our we computers. Feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our computers like to know what we're we we don't we don't know what we're feeling we have to like physicalize it somehow or make it tangible you know through artwork or and and I'm definitely not talking about anything lofty I just think that like some way to get it out of your head and onto a piece of paper or into a piece of music or you know into physical activity like that's how I actually know what I'm feeling um great yeah. yeah. Energy exer- exertion is so great. Like, obviously, we met through the gym and just having that, like, not only being in good health, and that helps with you being having a good mindset, but also mm-hmm. just like exerting energy, doing something for yourself, and just moving your body, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> I've found has been so important to having like balance and just being more self aware and having time to kind of get out of your head and yeah, do something. Yeah, I've heard the. I feel like I'm gonna bungle this up, um, but I've heard the the phrase like, um, "Think your way into right action." Um, but when you can't think your way into right action, you act your way into right thinking. And I do think that mm. sometimes, like, I get so stuck in my head that even if I know, like, logically, I'm like, okay, it's not helpful to feel this way, or you know, I should be feeling this other way. Like no amount of thinking is going to get me through that. Whereas if I just like get into my body and express whatever it is I'm feeling, um, or, you know, what I want to be feeling, then things start to shift. Um, yeah. So that physical expression is so important. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay. So let's talk about overcoming fear of rejection. So as an actor, you continually have been putting yourself out there for the last 10 years. And I'm sure more often than not, um, when you're auditioning, you've been rejected or have done lots of pilots or that sort of thing. So when you first started out, were you finding it really hard to cope with it or? Um, when I was starting out, did I find it hard to cope with it? Yeah. Just, or you mean, do I still find it hard to cope with it? Well, I mean, it's a two part question. So when you first started, um, how did you cope? And then now that you've had more experience these 10 years later, like, is there anything that you've really instilled to allow your mind to kind of shift or kind of turn a switch where you are getting over that fear of rejection. Like, of course, yeah. you're probably still auditioning for things and not necessarily getting the roles. And you're, you've are you been doing this for 10 years and you're Yeah, definitely persisting. way more rejection than, um, than <laughs> quote-unquote success. But, um, yeah, I mean, when I first started out, I took it a lot more personally because somewhere in my mind I was like, okay, if if I am a good enough actor, I will not get rejected. And sure, like I knew logically that wasn't true, but there was still somewhere in my, I think that everybody like somewhere hopes that they're Meryl Streep and that even if they're not right for a part, even if, um, you know, even if for umpteen reasons they shouldn't get a part, they're still going to because the people Mm -hmm. are going to be so blown away, you know, that it's still going to happen. And that has shifted for many reasons. Part of it is, um, just like really fully understanding how the whole process works and actually like having been on the other side of the audition process and seeing firsthand, like how many talented actors who are great for a role come into the room, um, when there's still only one role to cast, like, Mm -hmm. and so by, by virtue of that, like most of them will get rejected seeing that, you know, when it didn't involve me as the actor was really useful. And, um, I think the biggest thing that I, that I had to shift 
Um, and this is sort of thanks to, um, this acting teacher that I work with, who is also, um, sort of a, a Jungian based, um, she's not, she's not a licensed, uh, therapist or psychologist, but she is very knowledgeable about Jung and about like dreams and um, I could go down a whole rabbit hole with that. But the, the thing that's important from that is um, learning how to see each of these auditions as part of a larger process um, and not looking at it as like, okay, I'm doing this to get this job and this is the most important thing, but looking at it as, okay, this is another step in my growth as an actor. And what is it that I'm trying to how am I trying to develop overall? What is it in this phase of my career that I'm trying to look at in myself as a person? Like, what is it that I want to focus on in this particular audition that I can take with me, whether or not I get the part, you know, whether it's like how I handle my nerves before I go in the room, how I connect to, um, the people on the other side of the table, um, or something, you know, if it's something tricky emotionally within the scene, like if I can focus on that instead of like this is determining whether or not I get approval and I get this job, then I can come out of that situation having recognized my growth whether or not I get the job. And and it really does make each one feel a little less precious. And I think that that's something that can be applicable um, in so many other things that we do in life. Like the the less we can put so much pressure on a given situation to the less power that we give it to determine our worth, whether it's an interview, whether it's an audition, whether it's like a date. I mean, geez, dating and auditioning are so similar. <laughs> so stressful. And yes, so <laughs> stressful. And there's a lot of rejection and there's a lot of like, you know, okay, are we a good fit? I don't know. Do you like me? Do I like you? Um, yeah, then you definitely learn them that, again. <laughs> yeah. Two good people don't necessarily make a good match. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I've really had to like, it, it's helped me to take a step back and to sort of look at what my goals are for myself, like as a human being versus as an actor, you know, what are the things that I'm working on? And this teacher also, one of the most important things that she gave me is to start my work from, um, from exactly where I am and to not feel like I have to completely, you know, um, let me, okay, let me put it like this. Like one of the things I love about doing a play is if I have a play that's going to be, you know, once we start performances, if it runs for a month. That means that every night that I get to the theater, I've lived another day as a human being. And so I'm bringing different experiences to the show that night. And it would be silly to try to make the show exactly the same on closing night as it was on opening night. It would be boring. It would be pointless because there's no way that could happen because we are affected by what happens to us. And so the more I can try to make room for whatever is truly going on with me and trust that that there's room for that in my work or trust that there's room for that in my interaction with another person and not feel like I have to put on a put on a a, a mask or put on a, a show and pretend that that and I'm not talking about like, you know, going into interviews like sobbing because of something that that happened with, you know, my my parents or something that 
<laughs> but like not feeling like not feeling like I have to like completely stifle everything either. Um, I feel like there there's room for that messiness, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and tr- and recognizing that like the person that I'm talking to, the person I'm auditioning for, they're not perfect, and I don't have to be perfect. Um, and my idea of perfect probably like, like so often I feel like I'm a perfectionist who doesn't even know what perfect is because I do like, I am always like, no, I could do more. Like this isn't enough. It has to be better. But then who knows what the limit to that is. Um, so the more that like I can connect to my imperfection and feel like, oh, that's okay. And recognize that the person that I'm talking to or auditioning for or whatever, like also has going on a date with, (laughs) yeah, or going on a date with, like, it's all okay. Nobody's expecting anyone to be perfect. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's the, obviously the imperfections that is what really define people. And so, or allows you to have that vulnerable or authentic connection with somebody. So, yeah, which is great. (laughs) Um, Okay, so with personal branding, um, as somebody that's acting, you obviously have to put yourself out there in a certain way. Do you have any tips just in general for how people can stand out, whether that be in an audition or a job interview that have really worked for you? I guess bottom line, like it's it is important to know who you are, what your beliefs are, what your passions are. And then depending on what the situation is, sort of knowing going into it, like how those things apply specifically to that situation. So, um, you know, with different roles that require different parts of my personality, um, or if, you know, if you're going into an interview for one company, it could be very different from another company. And so I think it's important to identify, to first of all, have done the work on yourself to Mm -hmm. figure out what you're passionate about, um, what you're good at, what what excites your curiosity, that can be like such a blessing to figure that out because that's not, you know, of course it's important to know your strengths. It's important to know your weaknesses, but then to know like what it is that you are genuinely driven by and curious about. That's something that, um, goes beyond like one's perceived ability of oneself or whatever. It's just like what excites you in the world. Um, and so then like when you're going into any given interview or audition or whatever, like what is it that excites me about this job? What is it that excites me about this company? What is it that excites me about like the person that I'm talking to? If you know, the person that you're doing the interview with is someone whose career, you know, and, and admire. Um, I think that that's something that is important, um, to really connect with the other person and therefore, you know, have a more successful experience. But also I think that it's something that can take the pressure off of the worry about the situation. Um, and, and then I think that like once, you know, once you are in the room, like, again, just connecting to the other person as a human being and trying to figure out like what your shared experiences are um, and being genuine about like what it excites you and and um, and all these things, you know, that, that you have learned about yourself um, being being authentic in the way that you express them to somebody else and trusting that. Trusting that the most important thing is that you are yourself because, and this is again where the, the like auditioning or interviewing is like dating, like, you know, we've all been in dating situations where we think like, oh, this person is amazing. I need to figure out what it is that he or she wants from me. 
and then we're going to have a great relationship. But, you know, I have to figure out how to make this person like me. And that only works for so long. And then you realize, like, oh, we're not supposed to be together. We're not actually a match. And I think it's the same mm. with with um, with jobs, too. Like, we get in our heads, like, okay, how do I figure out how to get this job? How do I figure out what they want from me? And, yes, that's important to an extent. But if it's something that, that bottom line is going against, like, your values or your interests or just, like, your working style, then it's not a good match. And so it's not worth like placing yourself worth into whether or not you get that particular job. Um, and so I think like that, that's again, like why it is so important to be yourself and to express yourself. Because if, if they realize that like the way you're expressing yourself is not in line with what they're looking for, that's not a rejection of you. It's just like, that's not what that particular position needs at that moment. And then you'll be available for the thing that's more right for you. That's great. So this is kind of uh, in the same realm. And the final question that I have for you today that we ask all of the people on the show. Final question is, what is your number one tip for how others can be more love noteworthy in their business and career and life? And so for us, being love noteworthy is all about really being um, having those elements of love notes, so being sincere and passionate and personalized with your interactions, and then also creating that kind of it factor, having a lasting impression of being noteworthy. So what's your number one tip? <laughs> it's it's hard for me to simplify. Um, but <laughs> I, I think like the simplest and most important thing at the end of the day is being genuinely curious about other people and taking an interest in them. And because that's how you learn about yourself. That's how you grow. That's how you get, I mean, the, the selfish part of that is that how, that's how you get people interested in you because people love to talk about themselves. So <laughs> I do think that like extending, extending your curiosity to be interested more in the other person than about yourself, um, can be one of the greatest gifts because it can be so surprising that's great. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for being on the show today. I really appreciate you spending the time and I know you have to run away. So uh, thank you everybody else for listening. We really appreciate you continuing to follow the Love Noteworthy show. And I just hope that all of you have an amazing year and are setting some goals for 2015 as this is the final episode of the year. And thank you very much, everyone, and especially Emily. Thanks. <laughs>